Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. I am your host, Mitch Foster, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ando Anderson. Hello. And just before we launch into the rugby chats this week, just a reminder of who we are and what we do. So we're two diehard rugby fans having a weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby. Real, family-friendly and positive. Get involved. Get involved. Yeah, awesome. So, Ando, how's your week going so far? Mate, I'm one week away from holidays as a teacher oh, and I'm loving it. Uh, how good. So it's very, very good. Just hanging on by the, what is it, skin of your teeth or something? Till the that's bare what they end. say. That's, I don't understand that, but that's what they say. So yeah, it's been, um, I think a lot of people in general, not just teachers, but a lot of people have found as things have started to slow down with, or get back to normal, might be a better way of saying it, with the lockdown restrictions and everything being lifted. Personally, I'm just finding it a really weird adjustment going back to semi-normality. Yeah. And I'm very much needing this holiday break. So I'm looking forward to it. How about you? How's your week been? Yeah, I've been busy this week. I've been working a lot. But um, that's, that's a good thing. So I think when we started this podcast, work was a little bit of a different situation. So got to be grateful for the fact that I'm employed and, and doing good things. So yeah, it's good got rugby back on as well and we're only two or three weeks away from the Aussie comp kicking off so I'm getting very excited for that. I was thinking um, earlier today that I think I'm going to struggle to actually watch all the games on offer when the Aussie comp kicks off as well because it's just I find it hard to watch like four or five games of rugby on a weekend Um, and so we might have to just do some of the condensed like KO mini packages or something like that for maybe the New Zealand games and watch the Aussie ones in full once the Aussie games come around. Well, that yeah, that's true. I guess once the the new the Aussie comp kicks off, we'll have four games a week. Yeah, so correct. There's only going to be two games for each competition, but yes, mm-hmm. getting in four games in full. I, I don't know. I mean, we're an Aussie rugby podcast, so we'll focus on the Aussie games and maybe we'll have a brief 100%. chat about the the Kiwi ones and and any amazing performances or anything. But yeah, we'll we'll just keep it light and breezy. We'll We'll do as best as we can. <laughs> I did notice, actually, interest that um, KO doesn't have the minis for the New Zealand games, or at least as far as yeah. I found. Yeah, I wonder if that's an issue with kind of broadcast rights or whether it's they've cut so many people. Um, I'm not too because sure. Of, yeah, because of the Sky Sports. Yeah, hopefully it comes up with the Aussie comp. Now, before we move on, one thing I wanted to... I forgot to mention last week... Uh, I didn't actually know about this until later on in the week, to be fair. Mm-hmm. But did you see what Sky Sports have been doing over in New Zealand with the new Super Rugby comp? Mm-hmm. So you, you have the option if you're a Sky Sports subscriber to have a dedicated channel that oh. watches a single player. So yeah, the Bowden last Barrett week cam. they had the Bowden Barrett cam and this week they had the Aaron Cruden cam. So mm-hmm. you could have, mm-hmm. I don't know, I guess it's a separate channel, either flick between it or have it down in the bottom of your screen and just watch them the whole time. That'd be really interesting to learn how like one of the best fullbacks, one of the best tens in the world plays and just get like positional awareness, how he communicates with other players. I think yeah, that'd be really I remember when um when Del Piero came over for mm. Sydney FC that they Fox Sports did something similar for him. I remember tuning in and watching a little bit of that and just like well, I don't get it. I don't get soccer at all. So he's just <laughs> walking around with his hands on his hips most of the time. But then when he did move, he'd score a goal. He would just have this incredible <laughs> involvement and do absolutely nothing in between other touches. It just showed the class of the player that he didn't really need to put that much effort in to still dominate in the A-League. 
Well, one of the clips that I saw this week that came out of the Bowdoin Barrett camp was um, the trifle attempt to save the try tackle against um, Dan Coles. Um, yeah, yep. so you just see him. He's just sort of standing there. He starts trotting slowly, slowly across the field, and he just takes off, just starts sprinting, and then just dives headfirst into sort of Dan Cole's yep. legs. <laughs> it's yep. quite funny because when you can see the the build up in play, you know what's happening. But when you're just watching him, it just sort of looks like he's just trotting along, taking his time. <laughs> oh, got to go! <laughs> he just takes off, and then he gets pulled into that hug and roughed up. Yeah, by the, by that's the right. Yep. Yeah, very funny. So maybe that's something we'll see for the next for the new comp in Australia. We might have a Michael Hooper cam or a. That'd be really interesting. Yeah, it'd be cool know. to see. And then people could actually, if they get a Hooper cam, then you could actually have the opportunity to prove the naysayers wrong about everyone who claims he just sits on the wing for the entire game and just waits <laughs> for the ball to come out wide. You're like, well, actually, let's watch uh, the Hooper cam and see how often that is the case. Or we could have the Rob Simmons cam and just nothing happens the whole time. <laughs> supposedly but we'd again have to prove that right or wrong <laughs> cool well we've got a couple of social media platforms as well that you should hit us up on so on instagram hashtag pick underscore drive underscore rugby and in our facebook page pick and drive rugby podcast i uh, just want to sh- do a quick shout out as well to the new listeners we've picked up over the last couple of weeks um, our numbers are spiking with the return of rugby so welcome everybody if you're new it is a pleasure to have you here and may our friendship and relationship be long and fruitful yeah welcome everyone it's great to have more people listening each and every week to our thoughts on the aussie rugby landscape so welcome all right mitch why don't you share what we're going to be talking about this week all right so first up this week we're going to talk about the spicy news of the week we've got some player movements and we've got some interesting insights that have come out of Checkers time as Wallabies coach. So we'll look into that. And then we'll move on to round two of the New Zealand Super Rugby competition where we see the Chiefs host the Blues and the Hurricanes host the Crusaders. Let's jump on into it, mate. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Let's go. All right, welcome to our spicy news segment. So we're going to start off with a bit of domestic news before we move to the international scene. And really, there's been a bit, there hasn't been a huge amount on in the last week, but there's been a little bit of drama. And so let's just dive into that drama. So, Mitch, did you see the news around um, the selectors having a go at Michael Checker, particularly Michael O'Connor, saying that everything was a sham or like a scam and that there was this secret attacking play style that nobody knew anything about, but Checker claimed it was real. Like, did you see all this as it was unfolding? Yeah, I did. I saw the the news initially come out um, a few days ago about that that O'Connor had said that the whole thing didn't make any sense. And Mm. then watching the sort of World Cup campaign of the Wallabies just seemed like a complete shambles. And one of the things that he did come out and say in particular, and I thought this was interesting because it's something that we said in our um, Rugby World Cup podcast was that, or Rugby World Cup episode, was that Michael Checker seemed to have this secret plan that he was had up his sleeve and he kept sort of playing like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this secret plan out at some point and it's gonna, we're going to win the World Cup with it. But it just never came. And he sort mm. of had a few players that he'd sort of spoken to about it, but not. It, did, it seemed like the whole team didn't know what it was. And he was saying that there were certain players that knew what it was and he as the selector didn't know what this plan was or 
or what was meant to be happening and that it just seemed like just chaos really that no one knew what was happening and no one knew what they were meant to be doing and you kind of got that feeling watching the wallabies from the outside now we may just be getting confirmation bias because we previously believed this and now somebody is telling us what we already believed. Um, so I, just, I actually just, <laughs> I, I want to take a step back. Um, for anybody who doesn't know who Michael O'Connor is, basically he was one of the three selectors for the Wallabies uh, in the lead up to the World Cup campaign. So you had Michael Checker as a coach, you had Michael O'Connor, and then you had Scott Johnson, who was the kind of what head of rugby. Um, at yeah, RA. rugby development. Yeah, so basically he heads up the oh, rugby director show. of rugby, sorry. Is director of rugby, that's official. It. Thank you. Yeah, so basically Scott Johnson was direct boss, but between the three of them, um, Checker then chose the team. And so that was Michael O'Connor's role, was to be helping to choose a team. And apart from talking about a secret game plan that Mitch, you just went through and kind of poo-pooed as well, um, <laughs> O'Connor's also talking about the fact that supposedly players weren't behind it as well and that he believes that senior players, um, from the sounds of the articles such as obviously Hooper and uh, Beal, should have been stepping up and saying, we don't agree with this high-risk game plan that you're trying to get us to play. Uh, it's not working. We need to change it. Um, so, yeah, what do you think about that? Do you think the players, if they had, if they had disagreed, with Checker should have been standing up to him. Yeah, definitely. It's a it's an interesting sort of enlightenment that's come out. So Curtly Bill was one of the senior players at the time in the World Cup, and he was in the leadership group. He's also in the leadership group of the Waratahs currently, and he's captained them this year for the first time. But he came out last week um, in a podcast with David Campisi, and was sort of just reviewing the situation in Japan and and how it went. And he the things that he said was that he really felt like the team's performance suffered due to the chop and change nature of the tournament and the, yeah, not the tournament, but the selection, yeah. the selection yeah. decisions that each week on each game, there was a completely different backline put in place. And he said, we as players didn't have the option to sort of build that continuity and that flow. And so it's interesting that he's coming out and saying that now, but being one of the leading players in the leadership team at the time, he didn't take that to checker and say, look, I think we need to stop moving everyone around. You just wonder if um, Beal would have been really uncomfortable. Same with Hooper, because they were part of the 2014 Waratahs team. And basically having Checker as such a domineering personality that had incredible success with the Waratahs and then strong initial success with the Wallabies in 2015, um, you could see, I, I can see maybe externally, that maybe their loyalty to Checker got in the way and maybe now that Beal's had some time and space away from rugby, away from the competition, mm. away from knowing that Checker's going to be the coach of the national team, he's, he's not taking this opportunity to say anything very, very critical because I don't think he's being personal about it, but what he's voicing is, is his opinion over the selections. And I mean, externally, you can see that. They didn't have the same 9, 10 or 12 combination for and I haven't double checked this, but I'm fairly confident we didn't have the same 9, 10, 12 combo for any of the World Cup games. Or leading up to it either in the year, yeah. the tests yeah. prior. It, and so change all that's the time. just just my kind of feel of it. I remember that being a thought at the time, but I'd need to go back and double check. Um, but yeah, it just seems like it was just a really unsettled environment. And perhaps now that there's some water under the bridge, players and people involved are a bit more willing to come out and talk about it. Yeah, exactly. It, it's always, it's hindsight that comes out and you sort of 
everyone sort of looks back and go, yeah, we probably should have done something. We probably should have stepped up and said that we weren't comfortable with it, but they didn't. So the other mm. thing that um, Michael O'Connor said was that watching the team prepare as, as a coach or as a selector, he wasn't actually on the coaching team. Um, they dropped a lot of ball and he said that they were doing things that just didn't make sense in training. So he said yep. he was watching them prepare for their world cup games and he'd have players like Sokopi Kepu in the back line, trying to like flick passes through like a center. Yep. He's like, what's he doing there? He's like, if they're going to train in this way, they're going to play in that way. They were dropping balls and they were all out of position. And then you got into the games and the same thing happened. They made silly mistakes and they just didn't look like they had any direction. So you, you know what that reminds me of um, is I can't remember what year this game was, but it was a rugby championship. Australia is over in Argentina playing Argentina and we're getting pumped in the first half of the game. Oh yeah. I remember. So first half we're getting hammered. Then there's this God almighty spray from Checker in the sheds <laughs> at halftime. And then we come out and run in a large number of tries and end up winning the game comfortably. But the, th- the reason, one of the big things that I remember from that game was that it was the forward. So you, you got your pot of three that receives the ball generally from the scrum half or fly half. They, they run it up. And you have the front player who has the soft hands to tip it out or pop it in or take it up himself. So the person with the ball has three options. Run it himself, pop it out, pop it in. And we did that so incredibly well in that second half of the game with our tight five forwards having these really beautiful soft hands. Mm. And so I just, when he was talking about um, Sokopi Kepu trying to play these little passes and stuff, it just reminded me of that where obviously Checker tried to play this game that was high tempo, high skill, and he expected the forwards to be able to participate in that too. But my question would then be, why, why, why did it never work or why did it only work in very rare times? Like maybe that game against New Zealand in 2019 in Perth uh, where we beat them. Why did it only work in Argentina after we were nearly losing? What happened about every other game? Why is it that Checkers game plan very rarely got the results that he uh, was hoping for? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's, I guess, if you go back and look at sort of Checkers tenure, when he first came in as Wallabies coach, he did a few different things. He had a very experienced team. So in 2015, they did very well to get to the World Cup final. But then from that point on, they'd never really built on that momentum. They lost yep. a lot of that team to retirement or to international, like happens in a World Cup cycle. And the new players that came in, just the whole sort of mentality of the team shifted and they never regathered that same ability. And you would have, as you mentioned, these one or two games every now and then where they would bring something unique out of the bag, try something, and opposition weren't expecting it. So they would, they would use that to their advantage and that would ultimately allow them to win the game. So every now and then we'd pull out a game against New Zealand and we'd, we'd shock them and we'd win or South Africa. But overall, we lost, he lost most of his games that he coached. And I yeah. think his approach to the World Cup was that he had these probably four or five things that had worked in random games throughout the last six years. And he was going to play them in the World Cup altogether. But it just never came about and just didn't seem that the players knew that that was the plan or that that was what was meant to happen. There's a part of me that really likes when people come out and talk about what's happened in past competitions and um, 
games to give us a bit of insight but then there's also a part that is is, it's almost like it's breaking a code and so michael checker's reply his response to this criticism was um some of it was fair enough so he i'm going to quote from an article uh that check well that checker's quoted in I think it shows the disregard for it when a person's talking like that about stuff that's close to the team and isn't really qualified to make those comments. So he's obviously slamming O'Connor, so shows the disregard for it when a person's talking like that. Um, The whole thing's finished. I've not slagged anybody, nor spoken poorly of any other person inside the organization, and I don't want to. At a certain point, sometimes where the line is crossed and what the truth is, you have to stand up and say, that's not right, and a person shouldn't be talking like that. So he seems to, and to an extent, understandably have a perspective that what happened in an environment was a private affair and that simply pointing fingers and calling names at this point in time doesn't do anything and doesn't benefit anyone and just is kind of, yeah, name calling. What do you think about that? It just, it really just sounds like Checker trying to, um, to justify what he did and, and his performance. And it really just sounds like a little bit of a, a sookie baby, really. I mean, to say that Michael O'Connor isn't justified or experienced in saying these things is completely wrong. He's a mm. dual international player. He played for the Kangaroos and the Wallabies and he's coached the sevens, Australian Sevens team. So he's probably more qualified than Checker. Checker never played for the Wallabies. No, but he's got a really good coaching CV. So he took Leinster to a Heineken Cup uh, victory. He's coached really Wolby's champion. Uh, sorry, let me start again. Waratah's Super Rugby win. Leinster um, got the Heineken Cup. He has obviously had a fair bit of international experience in the fifteen-player game. But yeah, uh, but that doesn't say that O'Connor doesn't have experience. But yeah, I, I would I would say that Checker definitely does have experience. I also think that Checker had the um, Checker wasn't happy with the selection team when they were first brought in. Everyone sort of knows that, and so in, he's talking bits and pieces there that you know the only time I ever spoke to him was around selections. We we didn't talk game plans, and he said one of the other things that he said was he didn't understand the game plan when we beat the All Blacks in August. Yeah, and so you know he's just sort of trying to justify it and and dis and um to belittle. O'Connor, I guess, in a way. I don't know. I, I, yeah. I think what O'Connor's saying is, is fair enough. From an outsider's perspective, that definitely looked, that whole Wallabies and World Cup campaign just looked like it was out of control, really. And it, he probably shouldn't have been there by that point, but it was what it was. Yeah. I mean, look, some of this, we've spoken about at fair length before, so I don't think we'll go too much into the World Cup stuff. But just externally, it looked like there was something wrong. And perhaps this is an insight into what was wrong. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and the fact that now someone has come out that was inside the team and said these things, yeah, it just sort of justifies what everyone was thinking, really. Well, why don't we move on now to our next story? And we have a pretty interesting one that involves one of my um, favourite politicians of all time, John Howard. Please see a little bit of sarcasm within that. You've announced announced the big point too early. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Um, basically, <laughs> Rugby Australia have put together a team to coordinate the bidding process for the um, 2027 World Cup. And there are some pretty big names on that. Do you want me to run through some of them? Um, so we've got John Eels. Yep. 
We've got Sir Peter Cosgrove. What Sir a legend. Cos Eddington. Mm -hmm. Who's actually the, he's the chairman of this board, advisory board. Yep. Former Prime Minister John Howard, your old mate. Um, <laughs> and uh, Elizabeth Gaines. Who's the Fortescue Metals Group CEO, and he got Quantas Loyalty CEO Olivia Worth, who obviously is the kind of sponsor involvement within it too. So that's actually good because that indicates Qantas's commitment in the long term if they're putting their person onto, onto the 2027 World Cup bid panel. Yeah, exactly. We could definitely read into that. <laughs> and I will. And I <laughs> will. Um, cool. So I think this is a really positive move. So for people who don't know, the 2027 World Cup obviously hasn't been assigned to a country yet. Um, prior to the World Rugby Chairman negotiations, it was likely going to be Australia and Argentina bidding for it. Um, but Argentina withdrew their bid after we voted for Gus Pichot to become the world chairman. Now that didn't go through, but Argentina had already withdrawn their bid, which means that's leaving us as at this point in time, the sole contenders who have made their intention known publicly to take on that, uh, to, to host the world cup. And that would be absolutely incredible. Um, I'm really, really excited for this opportunity. And I think it's a good idea that they put this almost as like a, they're not going to be involved in anything else but the schmoozing and the dining and the the kind of kissing people's butts that's required to get <laughs> us this World Cup. And yeah, and it it's looks a, like it's a, a strong, it's a very strong board, and I think these people have the experience and the knowledge to put Australia's best interests forward. So mm -hmm. I'm I'm happy. I'm happy with the people they've chosen, and I really do hope that we can secure the rights to that World Cup. It'll be awesome. Yeah. So that's pretty exciting. Um, let's keep moving on. So there's a couple of player things we just want to mention. First off, huge congratulations to Michael Cooper for getting married to Cooper. his partner Kate. Got married over the weekend. So well done, Nick. That's great news. Can um, you just say Michael Cooper? I think I said Hooper, but I'm feeling quite sick right now. So if I said Cooper, I apologize profusely. It's Michael Hooper. Oh, is that his name? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Curly Beale has also, as we suspected, he is exiting the Waratahs early and will not be taking part in the Super Rugby um, Australian competition. So that's not that surprising, but it's interesting that confirmation came this late into the piece. I was, to be honest, I was actually surprised when this came in today. So this okay. was announced only this afternoon or earlier this morning. Um, we knew that Bill was going, but I, I actually was surprised that he's leaving immediately and that he won't play any more games for the Waratahs. Considering where he sits on the, like the most capped Waratah, I think he's equal most capped. Yep. He hasn't beaten it yet. And yep. like the French rugby competition hasn't announced when they're coming back yet either. So why would he leave early to go and train a preseason essentially and not play more rugby? It just seems a little bit odd. Um, and the fact that he won't play any more Wallabies again now. I know. and I th Well, he can. He can play Wallabies because he's over the Giddo law, the 60 cap limit. Um, but I doubt he will based on prior form. I mean, he's 31, so he's not over the hill yet. Uh, but I just don't think that his form at this point warrants a selection. And maybe if he's killing it at Racing 92 over in France, he'll deserve the call-up. And if so, good on him. But at the moment, well, I think... Yeah, one of the him. things we spoke about earlier this year was 
that um, Dave Rennie had put out a, a list of his potential Wallabies team. And players of national players interest. Of, yeah, that's right. And Bill wasn't on that list. And Correct, so they yeah. did say that they had spoken to Bill about that and that they had given him some work-ons to do. And so mm-hmm. he had to work on a, f- a few parts of his game and tailor them to be a little bit more, um, put his name forward a bit more, I guess, to, yep. to be selected. So yep. I would have thought that Bill would have wanted, I personally, if I was in Bill's position, I would want to try and stay and get that last season of Wallabies under my belt before I left for, for international waters. But I guess mm. he's decided to leave early. Well, good luck to him. Uh, let's move down to the Brumbies now. And Blake Enova, so Locke Blake Enova, has been released from his contract for personal reasons. Now, there's no specific information around that. We don't really need to know. Uh, but he's been released from the Brumbies and is returning home to Queensland to help care for his family. So obviously there's stuff going on there. Yeah. Um, we wish him all the best in that um, perspective. And also that, that's a pretty big blow for the Brumbies who are also without Caden Neville. So that means their locking stocks are pretty low considering they also lost Rory Arnold and Sam Carter too yeah, in the last did. year. Um, so it's going to be tough for the Brumbies, but just means some young guys will get more of an opportunity moving forward. Yeah, exactly. We'll see what happens. Open some doors and see who gets the, the, the call up. All right. Do you want to talk about the next one, Tim Simona? Yeah, so this is a bit of an interesting one. So uh, former NRL player Tim Simona, who a few years ago was found to have done some sort of shady business deals. Um, he was playing for the West Tigers in the NRL at the time. He, we won't go into the specifics too much, but he was sort of selling things under false pretenses, essentially. Um, So he was stood down from the NRL and I don't know specifically if he faced some jail time around it. Um, But yeah, he was, he had a, a period of time where he had to be out of the game. That's now come to an end. So he's now back playing, last year he was playing rugby league and the news has just come out that he has signed with Eastwood immediately to play rugby union this year so in the upcoming ship shoot shield comp yeah that's correct so this is this is a very interesting call considering that he's playing for eastwood and and he doesn't really have that much union experience yeah maybe he had a younger years because you often find that nrl players may well play union at school and then got poached by a, a league club yeah maybe he does have it at a school level yeah, but it'd be interesting to see how he goes and how he fits in the 15-man game and whether he can put himself forward for a, a super rugby team call-up. We don't know. We'll see what happens. We'll have to see if he's any good first. So yeah. let's find out when Shit Shield gets back on. Something to look forward to. Now, the now, next bit of news as well yeah, is yeah. around uh, Jewel International Matt Rogers has just announced his new career direction as a sports management agency. Cool. Good for him. <laughs> it's it's interesting. I don't know. I don't know what to say to this one. It's it's cool. I think he's got the experience of both league and union, and he did well in both of those different sports. So he's played for the Wallabies and the Kangaroos. He's played for State of Origin. He's played in sort of all of Australia's biggest sporting events. Really, he played for in the World Cup for the Wallabies. He's won a few Origins. So he he definitely knows the Australian sporting landscape. So I I I would say this is a good move for him to enter into that sports management area. Well, good for him. Hope it goes well. And hopefully it means that we get, well, sports management. What is that? What do they even do? They, is that like player agents? Yeah, agents. So hopefully he, 
he's going to not be the guy that decides all Reds players need to go off and play in Europe. Yeah, that would be helpful. That would definitely be helpful. And to his credit, I like his branding. So I hope it goes well based purely on the branding. It's got a nice <laughs> shirt emblem with a ball on it. It's, it's good. It looks clean. It's nice. <laughs> Crisp. Um, yes. Okay. So let's go now on to a couple of quick international points. Um, Will Skelton, who has been at Saracens after three seasons, who have essentially revitalised his career and helped him reach the potential that we all in Australia thought he had. Um, he's moving on from Saracens to La Rochelle in France. Now, this is almost definitely because of the um, relegation of Saracens to the championship because they've been rorting the, um, mm-hmm. the salary, salary cap for the cap. last couple of years. And salary also, cap. yeah, and there's also the um, reduction in the size of the salary cap in Premiership Rugby moving forward and Saris simply can't afford to play to pay their um, overseas players the huge amounts of money that they were getting paid before. They've so they've got so players. many of them as well. Yeah. have got like exactly. half of the England starting team. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's crazy. So they had a couple crazy. of them. Yeah, so the premiership's interesting and you've got a couple of marquee positions that are obviously getting paid for people like Owen Farrell, maybe Mario Itoje, that kind of thing. Um but they also have this thing called, I can't remember the exact name, but it's like Ingwit, it's uh, Academy Credits, where yes. if you um, bring players through from your academy, you can have a percentage of the salary counted as outside of the salary cap. Um, but then there's also English qualified players too. So if you are, if you have an English qualified player on your books, and I think there's also a clause which is related to how much game time they get, you can also take a certain amount off your salary cap then too. So yeah, it's, it's crazy complicated, but basically Skelton's moving because they can't afford him anymore and they're getting dropped to the championship. So good luck to him in France. Um, Obviously, we can't afford him, and it's fair enough for him to be pursuing the cash. It's his career, his job. He can do what he wants. Um, what um, but, do we know? What how long the contract was that he signed in France? Uh, no, but I can quickly look it up right now as we're moving forward. Um, the other thing I just wanted to say: Taniela Tupo benched two hundred kilograms this week. So far out. good on That's him. Awesome. Bit of a beast. What a beast! Um, Absolute unit. <laughs> well done so this deal doesn't this article i'm reading doesn't tell me how long the deal was but that's okay um now that does actually link me to this other quick thing um don't get demoralized about the state of rugby in australia because the premiership in england is having huge drama as well um, maybe this will happen here too but let's see now premiership rugby had uh, got all create all players to agree to a temporary 25 percent reduction of salary as a result of the COVID lockdown um, and the players agreed to it it was organized in conjunction with the players union and now the clubs have come together and said that 25% reduction that you volunteered to take on, which was temporary, is no longer temporary and it's going to be compulsory. So all of you are getting a pay cut by a quarter. Uh, a third a quarter? No, no. As in the 25% reduction is permanent, not temporary. Right. But it's not an additional 25. So that no, just cut no. their play, effectively cut it in half. Far uh, out. A quarter. A quarter, yeah. 
really interesting in that when the initial negotiations around the player deal and a 25% voluntary cut were being discussed, you actually had a semi-breakaway group of players headed up by some key figures like Ellis Genge who were saying, no, we shouldn't be taking this because if you see the writing on the wall, this is not going to be temporary. Mm. This is going to be something that they can actually force us to take on because I think he was seeing how no premiership clubs were profitable. Actually, only one, I think, was profitable in the previous year. Owners were hemorrhaging money. Um, the salary cap was probably going to be getting reduced. And so some players were saying, no, don't do it. But in the end, they all did. And now it's coming about to bite them hard. So perhaps the, you know how the Australian competition took, a lot, Australian players took a long time to agree to the um, reduction in pay in Australia. Perhaps there is, they did some of the groundwork to prevent something like this from happening in Australian rugby. That would make sense. That would be yeah. one reason why. But I think another reason that this has happened in the premiership is due to the, the private ownership of the clubs and the no, fact Bobby, that yeah. the um, rugby football union over in England doesn't actually have a say in what the players and have the, comp- the contractual agreements between the clubs and the players. Yep. So the power of the clubs is far greater than it is in Australia. And um, so premiership, premiership rugby is a separate entity that oversees the premiership competition and the, I'm not sure if the right term is the board or the directors or whatever, but the leading group of premiership rugby is just made up of the owners of the separate clubs and they are not directly responsible yeah. to RFU, which is like the national body like rugby. Australia. And I can, is I can see that's why this has happened. I don't, I don't foresee something like this happening in Australia. Just due to the fact that Rugby Australia is so invested in in the running of the clubs here. Yep. So it's interesting. It it'll be it'll be cool. Well, not cool. Wrong word. It'll be int- It'll be um, intriguing. Intriguing is yeah, good word to see how this yep. plays out in the future, because yeah. English the salaries in England are a lot higher than they are in Australia and New Zealand. Yep. So if yep. they're bringing that down, I wonder if all of a sudden Australia and New Zealand. Well, Super Rugby is going to be a little bit more of a competitive option again. We might yeah, see some maybe. of the English talent coming down our way and playing in Super Rugby. It's incredibly possible. I mean, how good cool would it be to see? How good cool would it be to see the likes of um, Owen Farrell, Maro Atoje, oh, Will Skelton even coming back and, and playing club footy in Australia? Or <laughs> club in footy, not club footy, but like <laughs> Super Rugby. Super Rugby. Oh, Super Rugby. Okay. Um, I would love for it to happen. I just don't think it will. Um, they wouldn't be around for the Six Nation games and they wouldn't be available to play in the Heineken Cup. And the Heineken Cup is pretty prestigious over in Europe. So that's the European Championship competition. It's like um, France, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if things progress as, as talk is going for a global calendar... Oh, yeah, true. Yep. And the option is still there and the ability for them to go back to England to play in the Six Nations... It could work, particularly if they are so money-driven. It might Possibly, work. Well, I think, I'm looking at the time now and I've realised how long we've just spoken about news <laughs> and we still need to talk about the games and have the interview. So why don't we kick on to our next segment? Good idea. Let's jump into it. Well, now we're going to dive into round two of the Super Rugby Aotearoa competition. 
So this week we had the Chiefs hosting the Blues and then the Hurricanes hosting the Crusaders. So before we dive into the actual games in too much detail, we're just going to have an overview of, of the, the, the round, how we found it. So, um, Ando, what were your thoughts around round two of the New Zealand competition? I honestly didn't enjoy this round as much as the first. And I think part of that is probably because, hey, first week was great. First week back of live sport, blah, 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 blah. I actually just think the quality of the games last week was better than it was this week. Uh, I think part of that is probably down to the horrific conditions of the Chiefs versus Blues. It was just pouring with rain the entire yeah, game. Yeah, it was really wet. Yeah, both games, like the Chiefs versus Blues, there was a lot of penalties in that game. Like the points largely came from penalties. And then the Canes versus Crusaders, like the Crusaders scored five tries, but the Canes stayed in the game because of penalties. And like, I get that that's a part of the game of rugby. It just, to me, wasn't as entertaining as the first week. The first week had two really high quality games. Second week, uh, just, there there weren't bad games inherently, but they just, in my mind, didn't match up to the strength of the first week. Yeah, and I think that was kind of shown in the the attendance of the games as well. So... Mm. The, the game in Hamilton had a fairly decent crowd, but I was quite surprised and I thought there'd be more people in the, um, the Hurricanes game in Wellington. The, the, yeah. There was a big section of the crowd, the, of the stadium that wasn't even opened. And so there was one point where the camera was sort of panning and then it just looked like there was no one there. And then they panned out a bit wider and you could see that they were in sort of sections and other sides of the stadium. But it just, they didn't have the atmosphere that the first two rounds had and they didn't have the amount of fans that were there. Mm. Do you have any idea why or any thoughts as to why? Um, maybe just because the first round was like such a new thing and everyone was really excited just to get out and see some rugby. And yep. then the sort of novelty wore off and it's now back into just the fact that it's rugby. And now people <laughs> are kind of like, oh, well, we can just stay home and watch it. I don't know. That's kind of what I was thinking. But at the same time, the two games last week were played in two different cities. So this was the opportunity for the Hamilton fans and the Wellington fans to get out and, and have a part of the super rugby competition but i don't know yeah it was it's interesting yeah and i think i wonder if a part of it is like the first game you can understand because it was pouring with rain and not many people want to go sit in the crowd and just get absolutely drenched for the like 90 plus minutes that you're gonna be there (laughs) i can i can definitely understand that one yeah um the second game no the conditions weren't particularly bad so it was pretty cold though like at kickoff they said it was 11 degrees yeah, but I mean, they're New Zealanders. Surely they're used to it. They claim yeah. to be tough, so surely they can just deal with it. Yeah, I don't know. I think maybe it's just wearing off the excitement of this new competition. We're starting to... <laughs> In the second week. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I, what I found really interesting about this round was that both games seemed quite similar in that the way that the storylines kind of went. In okay. that yeah. the scorelines were very tight all the way up until probably the 60th minute. So both yep. games, it was sort of seesawing between possession of both of um, dominance for, by both teams. So one team mm. would score, the other team would score. There was only a few points in it. And at halftime, both games had very tight margins. And it only yep. came into the last 20 minutes of the game where one team either stepped up. Um, we'll get into the specifics of that as we dive into the games. But the, um, the Blues really did step up and then the, the Crusaders just sort of showed their class and ran away with it at the end. But yeah, it was what just- about the Blues though? I mean, if we actually want to dive into the games now, the Blues are now two from two, and I'm not too sure how many people would have said that at the 
like if you'd been predicting beforehand how the Blues were going to be going in this new comp, you'd be probably saying the Blues were the weakest of the five New Zealand teams. So, and yet they're two from two. Leading into this comp, would you say that? Yeah, I mean, traditionally the Blues have been the weakest. At the start of the the actual general Super Rugby season, they were. Well, I still Um, think the um, Highlanders have always struggled the last few years. Yeah, true. But then they they're one from they're one from one as well. so, yeah, well, let's dive into the first game. So, the first game was played in Hamilton. It was the Chiefs hosting the Blues. Um, the final score ended up being 24-12 to the Blues. And this is actually a really big victory for the Blues because they haven't won in Hamilton since 2011. Wow. Wow. That's big. That is big. I think that what the Blues are doing is playing in a lot more of an intelligent manner. Um, so really one of those is, I think the points at which you can see the intelligence with which they're playing is Bowden Barrett's drop goal. Um, so it was in the second half, the boys would have a penalty. Um, uh, it was a ruck infringement from the Chiefs and they're playing it across the field. And after a ruck, they just pass it back to Bowden Barrett. He just coolly, calmly slots a drop goal, takes the points, goes back, restarts, continues the pressure on the Chiefs. And it was just one of these moments where you just go, that's smart, intelligent play just to keep ticking the scoreboard over and heaping the pressure upon the team who are then going to be forced to play more, to play more in conditions that really are not benefiting that. And um, it was the 64th minute that he got the drop goal. And yeah, I just think that it's really impressive to see this intelligence coming out of a team that have traditionally struggled in New Zealand comp. And I'm excited. I wonder if Bowden Barrett is just adding that extra level of class and this quality decision-making that maybe they've lacked in the back line previously. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it. The Bowden Barrett does bring that kind of rugby knowledge to this, to this, the back line. They have a very strong back line this year. They've got some mm. real weapons, particularly wide. Their two wingers are very, very dominant. And Oterra Black at number 10 is doing really, really well. But another point that I've been thinking is their coaching. They've had their coaching of the last sort of five or six years has been questionable in that they've always had dominant players or players of capability within the team. And they've just never seemed to be able to perform. Mm. And I think that this, the coaching setup has changed this year. I can't remember off the top of my head who the coach Leon McDonald, isn't it? Yes, that's right. And Tana Amanga is the assistant coach. Yep. Um, and he was their coach last year or the year before. Yep. He, yep. Was, he was previously the head coach and he stepped down to assistant coach for, for um, McDonald to come in. But yeah, just the smarts that this team is playing with, the rugby knowledge that they're showing is completely different to any blue side we've seen in the last few years. And I really do think that, that um, the rugby smarts and the way that they're approaching the game and, and as you said, keeping the scoreboard ticking over and keeping the play in the opposition's half is really benefiting them and is what's showing this massive change in approach to games. I really enjoyed the, uh, so the major, well, really the, they had two tries, the blues, they had one in the 15th minute and then one in the 72nd, that final try for the blues was something to watch. So uh, I'm not sure if you can remember it, but basically they get the ball on the right hand side of the field and then do a really nice sweeping play attacking from a bit of depth 
on the left-hand side of the field with Patrick Tupelotu having an awesome run forward. And I love his hairstyle. I just want to quickly say that. He's so <laughs> identifiable because of the pink hair. But anyway, he charges it up. They do a couple of quick recycles and hits and then swing it straight back over to the right-hand side, exploiting the fact that the, um, the Chiefs have been drawn over to the left, to the far side of the field. And so they do like two quick passes and then one monster cutout pass to get on the outside of the onrushing winger and then just play it through. It was a really nice manipulation of the Chiefs' defense by swinging it to one side of the field, securing, securing their own ball, and then punching it up to draw the Chiefs' defenders in before then punching it out wide really, really quickly to exploit the overlap that they had. It was smart. It was decisive. And it just showed the ability of the, that the Blues are developing to have that continuity in play and to manipulate the opposition defences. It was a really nice, clean try. Yeah, and it was really good to see that this Blues team was capable of making that stamp on the game. And when mm. the game was getting towards the final minutes and was getting towards the sort of competition points, um, they had the ability to step up and, and make that play and, and take that victory. So, yeah, I'm really surprised. I'm really impressed by this Blues side this year. Mm. They're doing really, really well. And, yeah, I, I didn't think that they'd be this dominant going into this competition. I think one of the interesting stats is that both teams that won on the weekend had 10% or more less possession. Actually, just under. So they had approximately 10% less possession. Um, the Blues were 45 to 55% possession, and the Satyrs were 46 to 54%. And whilst we haven't mentioned, haven't mentioned it yet, the Crusaders won. And um, it just makes me think that more and more this competition is shaping up as one where it can be really beneficial to not have the ball and to play field position and then turnovers as a result of the new interpretations around the rucks. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about plays. The breakdown is really important in this competition. Yeah. And I've got some thoughts on the Satyrs game about how they particularly played, but we'll get to that. I just found it interesting that, Hey, not, not inherently just kicking it away because I mean, the blues, scored a couple of tries the Satyrs scored five tries they're using the ball well when they have it but it's recognizing the right times at which to have the ball and when it's best to be kicking it away and pressuring the opposition defense so and that's, it, that's actually another thing that we've seen in this competition too is that teams are kicking the ball a lot more so mm. in this game alone the Blues kicked the ball from hand 33 times and the Chiefs kicked it 29 times and that's, that's a lot of kicks when you yep. combine those numbers so there's a lot of ball in, in play, like ball in air action. And I wonder, I think, yeah, I guess the big point about that, I think, is recognizing that there is a great opportunity for turnovers in with the new interpretations of the ruck laws that particularly if you can isolate outside backs who are receiving a kick or receiving a ball and the forwards aren't able to get back there in time to kind of help with the ruck defense, then that is where you can actually, so kicking is actually an offensive strategy rather than solely just clearing your lines. Yeah. And it might, some people might kind of think that's more of a Northern hemisphere strategy. And I guess traditionally it might be, um, particularly if you look at the way the Island over the last few years have been some of the masters of doing kind of the lofted box kick that is contestable. Um, but what this is doing is not actually trying to contest it in the air because you don't want to take that 50-50 kind of 
potential chance of just getting a knock on as you're going up for it or risking taking a player out and getting a penalty or a card against you. But they're just waiting for the player to take it down and then just flooding that ruck and hitting it really, really hard. And with the new interpretations, it's a lot harder to defend against. Although you're seeing some some players who are being too over-eager in trying to kind of uh, drive over the top of the ruck, yeah. just going off yeah. their feet and then getting pinged for that. That's but, true. But um, yeah, it seems like teams are trying to adjust, but this, the penalty count was still pretty high. It was, um, I can't see them in front of me right now. Where was it? It was yeah. 9 to 13 Chiefs to the Blues. And then it was 12 to 15 for the Hurricanes Crusaders. So 9 13 Chiefs Blues, that's pretty standard. That's not really particularly high. Yeah. Um, so it seems that they, at least, the two teams that had played the previous week, were able to adjust a bit more to the interpretations of the ref. Yeah. And it's, before we move on to the next game, it is worrying signs now for the Chiefs. They're zero from two so far. And this mm. competition is only going to get harder. It really is a tight competition in that there's only, you only play each team twice. So yep. we're nearly, like, we're, we're getting towards the halfway mark already. So... yeah. Yep. The fact that they've lost two games on the on the run, um, really, they're really on the back foot. All right, so let's move on to the second game. So the second game was played in Wellington. The Hurricanes hosted Crusaders. The final score was 39-25. And as we said previously, the game was fairly similar to the first one in that up until probably the 60, 65th minute, the score was really tight. It was only two or three mm. points in it. Um, and then it kind of seemed like the Hurricanes had a bit of a brain fade and just went to sleep. Yeah, well, you were asking me, I um, you saw this game before me and we were chatting earlier and I'd only watched the first half at that point. And you were saying, okay, what's your prediction? What do you think the game, how the games is going to finish up? And my thought at that point was that the Saders had given away so many penalties, but they were definitely... Uh, operating at a bit of a higher level than the Canes in the quality of their attack. I thought it's going to be tight because they keep giving away a lot of penalties, but I think the Saders have enough class to just creep ahead. And you know what? I kind of think I'm still right, even though they got away with two converted tries to seal the game. So they ended up winning by 14, but both of those were absolute gifts. And I think that the game was actually a lot tighter than the final score actually seems to indicate yes no it definitely was the the statistics particularly say that looking at possession and territory and stuff yeah so the possession was 55 percent to the hurricanes and 46 to the crusaders but it was 50 percent equal territory possession yeah so both teams look at both of those sorry to jump in you look at yep. both of those they they wait they change significantly first to second half so first half it's hugely in favor of the canes and then second half swings to be in favor of the satyrs so yeah it's a it's what is it a game of two halves is the cliche um, <laughs> but it just shows that yeah there was a lot of changing fortunes throughout the match and the satyrs just had the quality and strength in the second half to pull away but yeah, if you were the Hurricanes coach, you would just be absolutely beside yourself at the end of that game because the, the, the Hurricanes were still in it and they were doing really well to hang in and hang with the Crusaders. And then they just sort of went to sleep. So the last two tries in the 60, uh, 70th minute, 69th, 69th, 69th 70th. 70th minute, the, um, the Crusaders kicked the ball through and the Hurricanes replacement winger, who's a, a South African guy that's just come across New Zealand. Um, he goes up to sort of catch it 
go, takes the ball over the sideline and throws it back in. And Richie Mwanga is just standing there, just grab, just falls straight in his bread basket and dives over the line un, untouched. Mm. And he's thinking, oh, why would you throw that? Like, it's not like he looked up and saw a number of yellow jerseys. He would yeah. have seen more red. You just think he would hold that and take the ball into touch and play the line out. But Especially with how poor the lineouts had been in that game, there was every chance that they could actually just regather, even though it would be a Crusaders uh, throwing at the lineout. The Canes were had a good chance of actually getting the ball back. So, yeah, he really should have just held it. But, hey, that's hindsight, isn't it? And that last try, they just... It's sort of slow <laughs> motion. Like, nobody seemed to track the runner. So, he just went straight right through this hole and nobody even seemed to be diving to try and take him. He just And I just kind of standing there watching him run through and place it down. It was just really strange. It's sort of like the play switched off. Yeah. It's probably just a level, a reflection of the intensity of the game up until that point. Um, And maybe the Canes just didn't have the mental stamina to be able to kind of stay, or at least the, the players kind of at the edge of that ruck defense just, just switched off for a moment. And that was all it took for, Havili to be able to go through. Yeah, but the Crusaders really, they came out firing, didn't they? They scored in the first minute. Oh, that was incredible, wasn't it? <laughs> that was a really nice little interplay. So watching the, when the boss. game started and they scored there, I, I had, going into this game, I had real, um, I guess I was interested to see if the Crusaders were going to adapt to the new rules. The fact that they haven't played yet. They're the first team, or the last team, sorry, to play in this competition. Mm. They've trained it. They've seen it in action against the other games. But once you actually get out there and have a go, it, it changes things. But they 100%. adapted really well to it. And they just came out firing and scored that brilliant try right off the kickoff, basically. Um, and yeah, I guess that just goes to show that you shouldn't doubt the Crusaders and they really are such a class outfit. Yeah, and I think that that early try just shows, I don't know, the confidence. A fair bit of it was luck. There was some incredible handling skills from some of the outside, uh, like loose forwards on the outside of the back line to pick the ball up off their shoelaces and that type of thing and keep it going. But one of the things that people were, well, I noticed at the time and people were complaining about afterwards was the high number of penalties Mm -hmm. that the Crusaders racked up in the first half. After about... Oh, 20 and 25 minutes, it was 9 to 1 in favour of the Crusaders. Sorry, in favour of the Hurricanes. So, like the so Crusaders against the Crusaders. Yeah. yeah, and the question was justifiably asked, like, why are they not receiving a team yellow card at this point? Because they were for a variety of things, a lot of rock infringements at different parts of the field. But if there's this repeated infringement happening, then you need to be giving a yellow card as a consequence of that. And eventually... Um, Goodhue, mullet man, Jack Goodhue did get a pennant, <laughs> did get a yellow card <laughs> later in the game. Um, but that was kind of immaterial to how the game played out. By that yeah. point, the Crusaders were had fairly good control of what was happening. And I think that's one thing that we have seen in this competition where the referees have been quite um, intent on the breakdown and, and refereeing that area of the game. They've probably eased off in their use of yellow and red cards. Yeah. There was a few incidents last week as well where players have gone up and been tackled in the air and come down and landed on their heads and they were only given a yellow card when it really should have been a, it, like it met the red card threshold. So they're yeah. 
Maybe they've been tasked with like, knowing that they're blowing up a lot more penalties, maybe there's been something said going, well, let's just ease off on the amount of cards until players adapt to the new expectations. Mm. Um, So we're not ruining the game with shed loads of penalties and cards. Yeah. Just do one or the other. It's true. Yeah. I guess that's what they must be doing. Maybe. Maybe. One of the things I really liked about the Canes play was basically the Canes well I guess one of the things I noticed the Canes were really trying to get outside the Crusaders defense so they were trying to play with a bit of enterprise and flair out wide where they'd be using kind of the playmaker behind the two uh, forward decoy runners and they'd swing out wide try and have one of the Lucys get his arms through the tackle and then play it off but they weren't really that effective in it what the Satyrs kept doing was they off particularly in the second half were really really effective at doing these little little kicks in behind the onrushing canes defense and what that would do is that would force um, the hurricanes to be turning around or the winger or the fullback to be coming up and sweeping up and cleaning the ball but then the satyrs would pile in on top and try and force a turnover so i don't have the exact stats in front of me but knowing that in the first half it ended up roughly 10 to 2 penalties against the crusaders and yet the game ended up at 15 12 crusaders hurricanes shows that in the second half it was roughly two to one penalty count against the hurricanes Mm. and so i think a whole bunch of that was down to the short kicking game of the Crusaders just being really effective at pinning the Hurricanes back down in their half of the field and just applying that pressure, pressure, pressure. And maybe, maybe that's what resulted in those final two tries, which just brain fades as a result of consistent pressure from the Crusaders. Well, that's something the Crusaders team is so good at, is that they just grind out a victory and they just grind down the opposition to the point where they're just spent. Yeah. And I think... um, I think that really just shows the class and the quality of the Crusaders as one of the just premier outfits of Super Rugby over the last, what, 10, 15 years? I'm really looking forward to, um, I don't think it's happening next week, but I think it might be the week after, but where the Blues play the Crusaders. I reckon that's going to be a a meaty game. Mm. That must mean the Blues have the bye this coming week. That would sound likely. Possibly. Um, I'm not sure. I I haven't looked forward yet, but... Yeah, I'll quickly check it out now if I can before we finish up. But yeah, anything else you want to quickly comment on for that game? Just a, a point in general that I've found quite interesting about this new competition is there's been a lot of drop goals. Yeah, there has, and I it's guess people that you, a lot of them are coming from penalty advantage though. Yeah, but there's not a lot of it's not something you typically associate with New Zealand rugby. Yeah, so they they don't do a lot of drop goals and. It's, I think it's come from the golden point. And it's something the commentators were saying a few times throughout the games was that players have been so used, been practicing their drop goal so that if it gets to golden point, they're able to pull it off successfully. That when, oh, yeah. when they get under pressure in the game, they go, well, I might as well just take the kick. We saw that with Bowden Barrett. Bowden Barrett's first points as a Blues player came as a drop goal. Mm. Now, I don't think anyone would have thought that that was the first points Bowden Barrett would score as a Blues player. You would, I, I would most likely say it'd be a, a penalty. But um, yep. yeah, his first points as a Blues is a drop goal. And if you go back and look at that situation, where he takes that drop goal from, they had a penalty advantage, but it was a lot closer to the sideline. So it makes a lot more sense for him to drop 
to take the drop goal further in closer to the posts where he knows he's going to get it than to take it back and take a shot from the sideline where it's a lot harder. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, I think it's being smarter. They're just being smarter with the play, taking the points on offer. And because there are more penalties at the moment, they're just taking the opportunity when their penalty is present to use it more effectively. Cool. So did you figure out who's playing next week? Yeah, I got it here. So why don't we finish up our chat by telling you what games are on next week? So, uh, yeah, so let's, I'll read out the, top, the games. So on Saturday at 5 p.m. Um, Eastern, Australian Eastern time, Blues versus Highlanders. And then on Sunday at 1.35, you have Crusaders versus Chiefs. So who's your vote for Blues versus Highlanders? I'm going to go to Blues that one. Yep, me too. Two out of two, going strong. Let's keep and that that's happening. a Blues home game as well, so that'll be in Auckland. Lovely. Yep, correct. And then Saders versus Chiefs. It's got to be Saders. Yeah, I think so. The Chiefs, Chiefs are, are just... Two. Yeah. Um, although... This has been playing the in yeah, their stadium's called the Orange Theory Stadium, and I really dislike that name, so therefore I think the Chiefs are going to win. Um, that's that makes complete so. sense. Yep, good. Good. <laughs> well, why don't we finish on that piece of insightful commentary and we'll head on to our next section. Cool. Let's do it. Let's do it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. You can follow us on social media at the following outlets. Follow our Facebook page at Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. Send us a tweet at at pick underscore drive rugby. Follow our Instagram at pick underscore drive underscore rugby. Or send us an email at pickanddriverugby at gmail.com. We'd love to hear any questions or feedback you may have, so get in touch. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next week.